Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode, we start a new book, The Battle of the Labyrinth. Now, in the previous episode, we finished the book, The Titan's Curse. And we ended off with Grover saying that Pan actually talked to him and said, I await you. Isn't that amazing? After years of searching for Pan, Grover has been able to get at least a clue and has able been able to communicate to Pan. Also, I want to give a big shout out to Leo, who sent me a voice message saying that I should check out the Heroes of Olympus after the Percy Jackson series, which was actually what I'm planning to do. So thank you, Leo, for that voice message. And thank you for saying that this podcast is really cool. So thank you so much for that. Big shout out to you. And now we will read chapters one through two of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Chapter one, I battled the cheerleading squad. The last thing I wanted to do on my summer break was blow up another school. But there I was Monday morning, the first week of June, sitting in my mom's car in front of Good High School on East 81st. Good was this big brownstone building overlooking the East River. A bunch of BMWs and Lincoln Town cars were parked out front. Staring up at the fancy stone archway, I wondered how long it would take me to get kicked out of this place. Just relax. My mom didn't sound relaxed. It's only an orientation tour. And remember, dear, this is Paul's school. So try not to, you know, destroy it. Yes. Paul Blofus, my mom's boyfriend, was standing out front greeting future ninth graders as they came up the steps. With his salt and pepper hair, denim clothes, and leather jacket, he reminded me, reminded me of a TV actor, but he was just an English teacher. He managed to convince good high school to accept me for ninth grade, despite the fact that I'd gotten kicked out of every school I'd ever attended. I tried to warn him it wasn't a good idea, but he wouldn't listen. I looked at my mom. You haven't told him the truth about me, have you? She tapped her fingers nervously on the wheel. She was dressed up for a job interview. Her best blue dress and high-heeled shoes. I I thought we would wait, she admitted, so we don't scare him away. I'm sure orientation will be fine, Percy. It's only one morning. Great, I mumbled. I can get expelled before I I even start the school year. Think positive. Tomorrow you're off to camp. After orientation, you've got your date. It's not a date, I protested. It's just Annabeth, Mom, jeez. She's coming all the way from camp to meet you. Well, yeah. You're going to the movies. Yeah, just the two of you. Mom! She held up her hands in surrender, but I could tell she was trying hard not to smile. You better get inside, dear. I'll see you tonight. I was about to get out of the car when I looked over at the steps of the school. Paul Blofus was greeting a girl with frizzy red hair. She wore a maroon t-shirt and ratty jeans decorated with marker drawings. When she turned, I caught a glimpse of her face and the hairs on my arms stood straight up. Percy? My mom asked. What's wrong? Nothing, I stammered. Does the school have a side entrance? Down, Down the block on the right. Why? I'll see you later. My mom started to say something, but I got out of the car and ran, hoping the red-headed girl wouldn't see me. What was she doing here? Not even my luck could be this bad. Yeah, right. I was about to find out my luck could get a whole lot worse. Sneaking into orientation didn't work out too well. Two cheerleaders in purple and white uniforms were standing at the side entrance, waiting to ambush freshmen. 
Hi! They smiled, which I figured was the first and last time any cheerleaders would be that friendly to me. One was blonde with icy blue eyes, the other was African-American with dark curly hair like Medusa's. And believe me, I know what I'm talking about. Both girls had their names stitched in cursive on their uniforms. But with my dyslexia, the words looked like meaningless spaghetti. Welcome to good, the blonde girl said. You are so gonna love it. But as she looked me up and down, her expression said something more like, Ew, who's this loser? The other girl stepped uncomfortably close to me. I studied the stitching on her her uniform and made out Kelly. She smelled like roses and something else I recognized from riding lessons at camp. The scent of freshly washed horses. It was a weird smell for a cheerleader. Maybe she owned, owned, owned a horse or something. Anyway, she stood so close I got the feeling she was going to try to push me down the steps. What's your name, Fish? Fish? Freshman. Uh, Percy. The girls exchanged looks. Oh, Percy Jackson, the blonde one said. We've been waiting for you. That sent a major uh-oh chill down my back. They were blocking the entrance, smiling in a not very friendly way. My hand crept instinctively toward my pocket, where I kept my lethal ballpoint pen, riptide. Then another voice came from inside the building. Percy? It was Paul Blofus. Somewhere down the hallway, I'd never been so glad to hear his voice. The cheerleaders backed off. I was so anxious to get past them, I accidentally kneed Kelly in the thigh. Clang. Her leg made a hollow metallic sound like it just hit a flagpole. Ow, she muttered. Watch it, fish. I glanced down, but her leg looked like a regular old leg. I was too freaked out to ask questions. I dashed into the hall, the cheerleaders laughing behind me. There you are, Paul told me. Welcome to good. Hey, Paul, uh, Mr. Blofus. I glanced back, but the weird cheerleaders had disappeared. Percy, you look like you've seen a ghost. Yeah, uh... Paul clapped me on the back. Listen, I know you're nervous, but don't worry. We get a lot of kids here with ADHD and dyslexia. The teachers know how to help. I almost wanted to laugh. If only ADHD and dyslexia were my biggest worries. I mean, I knew Paul was trying to help, but if I told him the truth about me, he'd either think I was crazy or he'd run away screaming. Those cheerleaders, for instance. I had a bad feeling about them. Then I looked down the hall, and I remembered I had another problem. The red-headed girl I'd seen on the front steps was just coming in in the main entrance. Don't notice me, I prayed. She noticed me. Her eyes widened. Uh, where's the orientation? I asked Paul. The gym, that way, but bye. Percy? He called, but I was already running. I thought I'd lost her. A bunch of kids were heading for the gym, and soon I was just one of 314-year-olds all crammed into the bleachers. A marching band played an out-of-tune fight song that sounded like somebody hitting a bag of cats with a metal baseball bat. Older kids, probably student council members, stood up front modeling the good school uniform and looking all, hey, we're cool. Teachers smiled around, smiling and shaking hands with students. The walls of the gym were plastered with big purple and white banners that said, Welcome, future freshmen. Good is good. We're all family. And a bunch of other happy slogans that pretty much made up made me want to throw up. None of the other freshmen looked thrilled to be here either. I mean, coming to orientation in June when school doesn't even start until September is not cool. But at good, we prepared to excel early. At least that's what the brochure said.
The marching band stopped playing. A guy in a pinstripe suit came to the microphone and started talking, but the sound echoed around the gym, so I had no idea what he was saying. He might have been gargling. Somebody, someone grabbed my shoulder. What are you doing here? It was her, my redheaded nightmare. Rachel Elizabeth Dare, I said. Her jaw dropped like she couldn't believe I had the nerve to remember her name. And you're Percy somebody. I didn't get your full name last December when you tried to kill me. Look, I wasn't, I didn't, what are you doing here? Same as you, I guess. Orientation. You live in New York? What, you thought I lived at Hoover Dam? It never occurred to me. Whenever I thought about her, and I'm not saying I thought about her, she just like crossed my mind from time to time, okay? I always figured she lived in the Hoover, Hoover Dam area, since that's where I met her. We'd spent maybe like 10 minutes together, during which time I accidentally swung a sword at her. She'd saved my life, and I'd run away chased by a band of supernatural killing machines. You know, your typical chance meeting. Some guy behind us whispered, Hey, shut up! The cheerleaders are talking! Hi, guys! A girl bubbled into the microphone. It was a blonde I'd seen at the entrance. My name is Tammy, and this is like Kelly. Kelly did a cartwheel. Next to me, Rachel yelped like someone had stuck her with a pin. A few kids looked over and snickered, but Rachel just stared at the cheerleaders in horror. Tammy didn't seem to notice the outburst. She started talking about all the great ways we could get involved during her freshman year. Run, Rachel told me. Now. Why? Rachel didn't explain. She pushed her way to the edge of the bleachers, ignoring the frowning teachers and grumbling kids she was stepping on. I hesitated. Tammy was explaining how we were about to break into small groups and tour the school. Kelly caught my eye and gave me an amused smile like she was waiting to see what I'd do. It would look bad if I left right now. Paul Blofus was down there with the rest of the teachers. He'd wonder what was wrong. Then I thought about Rachel Elizabeth Dare and the special ability she shown last winter at Hoover Dam. She'd been able to see a group of security guards who weren't guards at all, who weren't even human. My heart pounding, I got up and followed her out of the gym. I found Rachel in the band room. She was hiding behind a bass drum in the percussion section. Get over here, she said. Keep your head down. I felt pretty silly hiding behind a bunch of bongos, but I crouched beside her. Did they follow you? Rachel asked. You mean the cheerleaders? She nodded nervously. I don't think so, I said. What are they? What did you see? Her green eyes were bright with fear. She had a sprinkle of freckles on her face that reminded me of constellations. Her maroon t-shirt read Harvard Art Department. You, you wouldn't believe me. Oh yeah, I would, I promised. I know you can see through the mist. The what? The mist, it's... Well, it's like this veil that hides the way things really are. Some mortals are born with the ability to see through it, like you. She studied me carefully. You did that at Hoover Dam. You called me a mortal like you're not. I felt like punching a bongo. What was I thinking? I could never explain. I shouldn't even try. Tell me, she begged. You know what it means? All these horrible things I see? Look, this is going to sound weird. Do you know anything about Greek myths? Like, the Minotaur and the Hydra? Yeah, just try not to say those names when I'm not when I'm around, okay? And the Furies, she said, warming up. And the Sirens, and okay. I looked around the band hall, making sure that Rachel was going to make a bunch of bloodthirsty nasties pop out of the walls, but we were still alone. 
Down the hallway, I heard a mob of kids coming out of the gymnasium. They were starting the group tours. We didn't have long to talk. All those monsters, I said, all the great gods, they're real. I knew it! I would have been more comfortable if she just called me a liar, but Rachel looked like I just confirmed her worst suspicion. You don't know how hard it's been, she said. For years, I thought I was going crazy. I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't... Her eyes narrowed. Wait, who are you really? I mean, really? Not a monster. Well, I know that. I could see if you were. You look like... You... But you're not human, are you? I swallowed. Even though I had three years to get used to who I was, I never talked about it with a regular mortal before. I mean, except for my mom, but she already knew. I don't know why, but I took the plunge. I'm a half-blood, I said. I'm half-human. And half-what? Just then, Tammy and Kelly stepped into the band room. The door slammed shut behind them. There you are, Percy Jackson, Tammy said. It's time for your orientation. They're horrible, Rachel gasped. Tammy and Kelly were still wearing their purple and white cheerleader costumes, holding pom-poms from the rally. What do they lo really look like? I asked, but Rachel seemed too stunned to answer. Oh, forget her. Tammy gave me a brilliant smile and started walking toward us. Kelly stayed by the doors, blocking our exit. They trapped us. I knew we'd have to fight our way out, but Tammy's smile was so dazzling it distracted me. Her blue eyes were beautiful and the way her hair swept over her shoulders. Percy! Rachel warned. I said something really intelligent, like, uh... Tammy was getting closer. She held out her pom-poms. Percy! Rachel's voice seemed to come out, coming from a long way away. Snap out of it! It took all my willpower, but I got my pen out of my pocket and capped it. Riptide grew into a three-foot-long bronze sword, its blaze blade glowing with a faint golden light. Tammy's smile turned to a sneer. Oh, come on, she protested. You don't need that. How about a kiss instead? She smelled like roses and clean animal fur. A weird but somehow intoxicating smell. Rachel pinched my arm hard. Percy, she wants to bite you. Look at her. She's just jealous. Tammy looked back at Kelly. May I, mistress? Kelly was still blocking the door, licking her lips hungrily. Go ahead, Tammy. You're doing fine. Tammy took another step forward, but I leveled the tip of my sword at her chest. Get back. She snarled. Freshman, she said with disgust. This is our school half-blood. We feed on whom we choose. Then she began to change. The color drained out of her face and arms. Her skin turned as white as chalk. Her eyes completely red. Her teeth grew into fangs. A, a, a vampire! I stammered. Then I noticed her legs. Below the cheerleader skirt, her left leg was brown and shaggy with a donkey's hoof. Her right leg was shaped like a human leg, but it was made of bronze. Uh, a vampire with... Don't mention the legs, Tammy snapped. It's rude to make fun. She advanced on her weird mismatched legs. She looked totally bizarre, especially with the pom-poms, but I couldn't laugh not facing those red eyes and sharp fangs. A vampire, you say? Kelly laughed. That silly legend was based on us, you fool. We are Empusai, servants of Hecate. Mmm. Tammy edged closer to me. Dark magic formed us from animal, bronze, and ghost. 
We exist to feed on the blood of young men. Now come, give me that kiss. She bared her fangs. I was so paralyzed I couldn't move. But Rachel threw a snare drum at the impusa's head. The demon hissed and batted the drum away. It went rolling along the aisles between music stands, its springs rattling against the drum head. Rachel threw a xylophone, but the demon just swatted that away too. I don't usually kill girls, Tammy growled. But for you, mortal, I'll make an exception. Your eyesight is a little too good. She lunged at Rachel. No! I slashed with Riptide. Tammy tried to dodge my blade, but I sliced straight through her cheerleader uniform. And with a horrible wail, she exploded into dust all over Rachel. Rachel coughed. She looked like she just had a sack of flour dumped on her head. Gross! Monsters do that, I said. Sorry. You killed my trainee! Kelly yelled. You need a lesson in school spirit, Half-Blood. Then she too began to change. Her wiry hair turned to flickering flames. Her eyes turned red. She grew fangs. She loped toward us, her brass foot and hoof clopping unevenly on the band room floor. I am Senior Impusa, she growled. No hero has bested me in a thousand years. Yeah, I said. Then you're overdue. Kelly was a lot faster than Tammy. She dodged my first strike and rolled into the brass deck section, knocking over a row of trombones with a mighty crash. Rachel scrambled out of the way. I put myself between her and the Impusa. Kelly circled us, her eyes going from me to the sword. Such a pretty little blade, she said. What a shame it stands between us. Her form shimmered, sometimes a demon, sometimes a pretty cheerleader. I tried to keep my mind focused, but it was really distracting. Poor dear, Kelly chuckled. You don't even know what's happening, do you? Soon your pretty little camp in flames. Your friends made slaves to the lord of time, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. It would be merciful to end your life now, before you have to see that. From down the hall, I heard voices. A tour group was approaching. A man was saying something about locker combinations. The impusa's eyes lit up. Excellent, we're about to have company. She picked up a tuba and threw it at me. Rachel and I ducked. The tuba sailed over our heads and crashed through the window. The voices in the hall died down. Percy! Kelly shouted, pretending to be scared. Why did you throw that? I was too surprised to answer. Kelly picked up a music stand and swiped a row of clarinets and flutes. Chairs and musical instruments crashed to the floor. Stop it! I said. People were tromping down the hall now, coming in our direction. Time to greet our visitors! Kelly bared her fangs and ran for the doors. I charged after her with Riptide. I had to stop her from hunting the mortals. Percy, don't! Rachel shouted, but I hadn't realized what Kelly was up to until it was too late. Kelly flung open the doors. Paul Blofus and a bunch of freshmen stepped back in shock. I raised my sword. At the last second, the impusa turned toward me like a cowering victim. Oh no, please, she cried. I couldn't stop my blade, it was already in motion. Just before the celestial bronze hit her, Kelly exploded into flames like a Molotov cocktail. Waves of fire splashed over everything. I'd never seen a monster do that before, but I didn't have time to wonder about it. I backed into the band room as flames engulfed the doorway. Percy! Paul Blofus looked completely stunned, staring at me from across the fire. What have you done? 
Kids screamed and ran down the hall. The fire alarm wailed. Ceiling sprinklers hissed to life. In the chaos, Rachel tugged on, tugged on my sleeve. You have to get out of here. She was right. The school was in flames and I'd be held responsible. Mortals couldn't see the mist properly. To them, it would look like I just attacked a helpless cheerleader in front of a group of witnesses. There was no way I could explain it. I turned from Paul and sprinted for the broken band room window. I burst out of the alley onto East 81st and ran straight into Annabeth. Hey, you're out early. She laughed, grabbing my shoulders to keep me from tumbling into the street. Watch where you're going, seaweed brain. For a split second, she was in a good mood and everything was fine. She was wearing jeans and an orange cam t-shirt and her clay bead necklace. Her blonde hair was pulled back in a ponytail. Her gray eyes sparkled. She looked like she was ready to catch a movie, have a cool afternoon hanging out together. Then Rachel Elizabeth Dare, still covered in monster dust, came charging out of the alley, yelling, Percy, wait up! Annabeth's smile melted. She stared at Rachel, then at the school. For the first time, she seemed to notice the black smoke and the ringing fire alarms. She frowned at me. What did you dis- What did you do this time? And who was this? Oh, Rachel. Annabeth. Annabeth. Rachel. Um, she's a friend, I guess. I wasn't sure what to, else to call Rachel. I mean, I barely knew her. After being in two life-or-death situations together, I just couldn't call her nobody. Hi, Rachel said. Then she turned to me. You are in so much trouble, and you still owe me an explanation. Police silence wailed on FDR Drive. Percy, Emmett said coldly, we should go. I want to know more about half-bloods, Rachel insisted, and monsters, and this stuff about the gods. She grabbed my arm, whipped out a permanent marker, and wrote a phone number on my hand. You're going to call me and explain, okay? You owe me that. Now get going. But I'll make up some story, Rachel said. I'll tell them it wasn't your fault. Just go. She ran back toward the school, leaving Annabeth and me in the street. Annabeth stared at me for a second, then she turned and took off. Hey! I jogged after her. There were these two emphasize, I tried to explain. They were cheerleaders, see, and they, they said the camp was going to burn, and you told a mortal girl about half-bloods? She can see through the mist. She saw the monsters before I did. So you told her the truth. She recognized me from Hoover Dam, so you've met her before? Um, last winter... But seriously, I barely know her. She's kind of cute. I I never thought about it. Annabeth kept walking toward York, York Avenue. I'll deal with the school. I promised. Anxious to change the subject. Honest, it'll be fine. Annabeth wouldn't even look at me. I guess our afternoon is off. We should get you out of here, now that the police will be searching for you. Behind us, smoke billowed up from Good High School. In the dark column of ashes, I thought I could almost see a face. A she-demon with red eyes laughing at me. Your pretty little camp in flames, Kelly had said. Your friends had made slaves to the lord of time. You're right, I told Annabeth, my heart sinking. We have to get to Camp Half-Blood now. And that is the end of chapter one. But don't worry, right after this break, we're going to read chapter two. The Underworld sends me a prank call. Now... I really wonder what happened to Kelly. I mean, she did turn into flames, but, you know, I'm not sure if she's actually, you know, dead, you know, killed by Percy's sword or not. So I really wonder what happened to Kelly and what she meant by everyone making friends, like all of Percy's friends making slaves to the time gone. But I guess we'll find out later on in the story. 
So right after this break, we'll read chapter two. And we are back from the ads. And now we'll read chapter two. The Underworld sends me a prank call. Nothing caps off the perfect morning like a long taxi ride with an angry girl. I tried to talk to Annabeth, but she was acting like I just punched her grandmother. All I managed to get out of her was that she had a, she'd had a monster-infested spring in San Francisco. She'd come back to camp twice since Christmas, but wouldn't tell me why. Which kind of ticked me off because she hadn't even told me she was in New York. And she'd learned nothing about the whereabouts of Nico D'Angelo. Long story. Any word on Luke? I asked. She shook her head. I knew this was a touchy subject for her. Annabeth had always admired Luke, the former head counselor for Hermes, who had betrayed us and joined the evil titan Lord Kronos. She wouldn't admit it, but I knew she still liked him. When we fought Luke on Mont Tamalpais last winter, he'd somehow survived a 50-foot fall off a cliff. Now, as far as I knew, he was still sailing around on his demon-infested cruise ship while his chopped-up Lord Kronos reformed, bit by bit, in a golden sarcophagus, biding his time until he had enough power to challenge the Olympian gods. In demigod-speak, we call this a problem. Mount Tam is still overrun with monsters, Ambit said. I didn't dare go close, but I don't think Luke is up there. I think I would know if he was. That didn't make me feel much better. What about Grover? He's at camp, she said. We'll see him today. Did he have any luck? I mean, with the search for Pan? Ambit fingered her bead necklace, the way she does when she's worried. You'll see, she said, but she didn't explain. As we headed through Brooklyn, I used Annabeth's phone to call my mom. Half-bloods try not to use cell phones if we can avoid it, because broadcasting our voices is like sending up a flare to the monsters. Here I am, please eat me now. But I figured this call was important. I left a message on our home voicemail, trying to explain what had happened at Good. I probably didn't do a very good job. I told my mom I was fine, she shouldn't worry, and but I was going to stay at camp until things cooled down. I asked her to tell Paul Blofus I was sorry. We rode in silence after that. The city melted away until we were off the expressway and rolling through the countryside of northern Long Island, past orchards and wineries and fresh produce stands. I stared at the phone number Rachel Elizabeth Dare had scrawled on my hand. I knew it was crazy, but I was tempted to call her. Maybe she could help me understand what the Impusa had been talking about. The camp burning, my friends imprisoned. Why had Kelly exploded into flames? I knew monsters never truly died. Even eventually, maybe weeks, months, or years from now, Kelly would reform out of the primordial nastiness seething in the underworld. But still, monsters didn't usually let themselves get destroyed so easily, if she really was destroyed. The taxi exited on Route 25A. We headed through the woods along the north shore until a low ridge of hills appeared on our left. Annabeth told the driver to pull over on Farm Road 3.141 at the base of Half-Blood Hill. The driver frowned. There ain't nothing here, miss. You sure you want out? Yes, please. Annabeth handed him a roll of mortal cash, and the driver decided not to argue. Annabeth and I hiked to the crest of the hill. 
The young guardian dragon was dozing, coiled around the pine tree, but he lifted his coppery head as we approached and let Annabeth scratch his, under his chin. Steam hissed out from his nostrils like, a tea, like from a tea kettle, and he went across eyed with pleasure. Hey, Pleas, Annabeth said. Keep, keeping everything safe? The last time I'd seen the dragon, he'd been six feet long. Now he was only twice that, and as thick around as the tree itself above his head... On the lowest branch of the pine tree, the golden fleece shimmered. Its magic protecting the camp's borders from invasion. The dragon seemed relaxed, like everything was okay. Below us, Camp Half-Blood looked peaceful. Green fields, forest, shiny white Greek buildings, a four-story farmhouse we called a big house, sat proudly in the midst of the strawberry fields. To the north, past the beach, the Long Island Sound glittered in the sunlight. Still, something felt wrong. There was tension in the air, as if the hill itself were holding its breath, waiting for something bad to happen. We walked down into the valley and found the summer session in full swing. Most of the campers had arrived last Friday, so I already felt out of it. The satyrs were playing their pipes in the strawberry fields, making the plants grow with woodland magic. Campers were having flying horseback lessons, swooping over the woods on their pegasi. Smoke rose from the forges and hammers rang as kids made their own weapons for arts and crafts. The Athena and Demeter troops were having a chariot race across the, around the track. And over at the canoe lake, some kids in a Greek tri trireme were fighting a large orange sea serpent. A typical day at camp. I need to talk to Cl Clarice, Ebbett said. I stared at her as if she just said, I need to eat a large, smelly boot. What for? Clarice from the Aries cabin was one of my least favorite people. She was a mean, ungrateful bully. Her dad, the war god, wanted to kill me. She tried to beat me to a pulp on a regular basis. Other than that, she was just great. We've been working on something, Ambit said. I'll see you later. Working on what? Ambit glanced toward the forest. I'll tell Sharon you're here, she said. He'll want to talk to you before the hearing. What hearing? But she jogged down the path toward the archery field without looking back. Yeah, I muttered. Great talking with you, too. As I made my way toward cam through camp, I said hi to some of my friends. In the big house's driveway, Connor and Travis Stoll from the Hermes cabin were hot-wiring the camp's SUV. Selena Beauregard, the head counselor for Aphrodite, waved at me from her pegasus as she flew past. I looked for Grover, and I, but I didn't see him. Finally, I wandered into the sword arena, where I usually go when I'm in a bad mood. Practicing always calms me down. Maybe that's because swordplay is one thing I actually understand. I walked into the amphitheater, and my heart almost stopped. In the middle of the arena floor, with its back to me, was the biggest hellhound I'd ever seen. I mean, I've seen some pretty big hellhounds. One the size of a rhino tried to kill me when I was 12. But this hellhound was bigger than a tank. I had no idea how it got past the camp's magical boundaries. It looked right at home, lying on its belly, growling contently as it chewed the head off a combat dummy. It hadn't noticed me yet, but if I made a sound, I knew it would sense me. There was no time to go for help. I pulled out Riptide and capped it. Yeah! I charged. I brought down the blade on the monster's enormous backside when, out of nowhere, another sword blocked my strike. Clang! The hellhound pricked up its ears. Woof! I jumped back and instinct instinctively struck at the swordsman. A gray-haired man in Greek armor, he parried my attack with no problem. 
Whoa there, he said. Truce. Woof. The hellhound's bark shook the arena. That's a hellhound, I shouted. She's harmless, the man said. That's Mrs. O'Leary. I blinked. Mrs. O'Leary? At the sound of her name, the hellhound barked again. I realized she wasn't angry. She was excited. She nudged the soggy, badly chewed target dummy toward the swordsman. Good girl, the man said. With his free hand, he grabbed the armored mannequin by the neck and heaved it toward the bleachers. Get the Greek! Get the Greek! Mrs. O'Leary bounded after her prey and pounced on the dummy, flattening its armor. She began chewing on its helmet. The swordsman smiled dryly. He was in a he was in his fifties, I guess, with short gray hair and a clipped gray beard. He was in good shape for an older guy. He wore black mountain climbing pants and a bronze breastplate strapped over an orange camp t-shirt. At the base of his neck was a strange mark, a purplish blotch like a birthmark mark or a tattoo. But before I could make out what it was, he shifted his armor straps and the mark disappeared under his collar. Mrs. O'Leary is my pet, he explained. I couldn't let you stick a sword in her rump now, could I? That might have scared her. Who are you? Promise not to kill me if I put my sword away? I guess. He sheathed his sword and held out his hand. Quintus. I shook his, I shook his hand. It was as rough as sandpaper. Percy Jackson, I said. Sorry, but how did you, um... Get a hellhound for a pet? Long story, involving many close calls with death and quite a few giant chew toys. I'm the new sword instructor, by the way, helping out Mr. Sh- helping out Sharon while Mr. D is away. Oh. I tried not to stare at Mrs. O'Leary ripped off the target dummy shield with the arm still attached and shook it like a frisbee. Wait, Mr. D's away? Yes. Well, busy times. Even Dionysus must help out. He's gone to visit some old friends, make sure they're on the right side. I probably shouldn't say more than that. If Dionysus was gone, that was the best news I'd had all day. He was only our camp director because Zeus had sent him here as a punishment for chasing some off-limits wood nymph. He hated the campers and tried to make our lives miserable. With him away, this summer might actually be cool. On the other hand, if Dionysus actually if had gotten off his butt and actually started helping the gods recruit the Titans' threat... Recruit against the Titan's threat? Things must be looking pretty bad. Off to my left, there was a loud bump. Six wooden crates the size of picnic tables were stacked nearby. Then they were rattling. Mrs. O'Leary cocked her head and bounded toward them. Whoa, girl, Quintus said. Those aren't for you. He distracted her with a bronze shield frisbee. The crates thumped and shook. There were words printed on the side, but with my dyslexia, they took me a few minutes to decipher. Triple G Ranch. Fragile. This end up. Along the bottom, in smaller letters, open with care. Triple G Ranch is not responsible for property damage, maiming, or excruciatingly painful debts. What's in the box? A little surprise, Quintus said. Training activity for tomorrow night. You'll love it. Uh, okay, I said, though I wasn't sure about the excruciatingly painful death part. Quintus threw the bronze shield, and Mrs. O'Leary lumbered after it. You young ones need more challenges. They didn't have camps like this when I was a boy. You're a half-blood? I didn't mean to sound so surprised, but I never seen an old demigod before. 
Quintus chuckled. Some of us do survive into adulthood, you know? Not all of us are the subject of terrible prophecies. Do you know about my prophecy? I heard a few things. I wanted to ask what few things, but just then Sharon clip-clopped into the arena. Percy, there you are! He must have come from teaching archery. He had a quiver and bow slung over his number one centaur t-shirt. He trimmed his curly brown hair and beard for the summer, and his lower half, which was a white stallion, was flecked with mud and grass. I see you've met our new instructor. Sharon's tone was light, but there was an uneasy look in his eyes. Quintus, do you mind if I borrow Percy? Not at all, Master Sharon. No need to call me Master, Sharon said, though he sounded sort of pleased. Come, Percy, we have much to discuss. I took one more glance at Mrs. O'Leary, who was now chewing off the target dummy's legs. Well, see ya, I told Quintus. As we were walking away, I whispered to Shran. Quintus seems kind of... Mysterious, Shran suggested. Hard to read? Yeah. Shran nodded. A very qualified half-blood. Excellent swordsman. I just wish I understood. Whatever he was going to say, he apparently changed his mind. First things first, Percy. Annabeth told me you met some Empusai. Yeah, I told him about the fight at Good and how Kelly had exploded into flames. Mmm, Sean said. The more powerful ones can do that. She did not die, Percy. She simply escaped. It is not good that, she, that the she-demons are stirring. What were they doing there? I asked. Waiting for me? Possibly, Sean frowned. It is amazing you survived. The powers of de- deception, almost any male hero would have fall- fallen under their spell and would have been devoured. I would have been, I admitted, except for Rachel. Sharon nodded. Ironic to be saved by a mortal, yet we owe her a debt. What the Empusa said about the attack on camp, we must speak of this further. But for now, come. We should get you to the woods. Grover will want you there. Where? At his formal hearing, Sharon said grimly. The Council of Cloven Elders is now meeting now to decide his fate. Sean said we needed to hurry, so I let him give me a ride on his back. As we galloped past the cabins, I glanced at the dining hall, an open-air Greek pavilion on a hill overlooking the sea. It was the first time I'd seen the place since last summer, and it brought back bad memories. Sean plunged into the woods. Nibs peeked out of the trees to watch us pass. Large trees rustled in the shadows, monsters that were shocked in here as a challenge to the campers. I thought I knew the forest pretty well after playing capture the flag here for two summers, but Sharon took me away I didn't recognize. Through a tunnel of old willow trees, past a little waterfall, and into a glade blanketed with wildflowers. A bunch of satires were sitting in a circle in the grass. Grover stood in the middle facing three three really old, really fat satires who sat on topiary thrones, shaped out of rose bushes. I'd never seen the three old satires before, but I guess they must be the Council of Cloven Elders. Grover seemed to be telling them a story. He twisted the bottom of his t-shirt, shifting nervously on his goat hooves. He hadn't changed much since last winter. Maybe he caused satires aid. Maybe because satires age half as fast as humans. His acne flared up. His horns had gotten a little bigger, so they just stuck out over his curly hair. I realized with a start that I was taller than he was now. Standing off to one side of the circle was, were Annabeth and another girl I'd never seen before, and Clarice. Sharon dropped me next to them. 
Clarice's stingy brown hair was tied back with a camouflage bandana. If possible, she looked even buffer, like she'd been working out. She glared at me and muttered, punk, which must have meant she was in a good mood. Usually she says hello by trying to kill me. Annabeth had her arm around the other girl who looked like she'd been crying. She was small, petite, I guess you could call it, with wispy hair the color of amber and a pretty elvish face. She wore a green chiton and lace sandals and she was dabbing her eyes with a handkerchief. It's, it's going terribly, she sniffled. No, no, Ambit patted her shoulder. He'll be fine, Juniper. Ambit looked at me and mouthed the words, Grover's girlfriend. But at least I thought that's what she said, but that made no sense. Grover with a girlfriend? Then I looked at Juniper more closely, and I realized her eye ears were slightly pointed. Her eyes, instead of being red from crying, were tinged green, the color of chlorophyll. She was a tree nymph, a dryad. Master Underwood! The council member on the right shouted, cutting off at whatever Grover was trying to say. Do you seriously expect us believe, to believe this? But Selenus! Grover stammered. It's the truth! The council guy, Selenus, turned to his colleagues and muttered something. Sharon cantered up to the front and stood next to them. I remembered he was an honorary member of the council, but I never thought about it much. The elders didn't look very impressive. They reminded me of the goats in a petting zoo. Huge bellies, sleepy expressions, and glazed eyes that couldn't see the past the next handful of goat chow. I wasn't sure why Grover looked so nervous. Selenus tugged his yellow polo shirt over his belly and adjusted himself on his rose bush thorn throne. Master Underwood, for six months, six months we have been hearing these scandalous claims that you heard the wild god Pan speak. But I did! Impudence, said the elder on the left. Now, Moran, Sharon said, patience. Patience indeed, Moran said. I've had it up to my horns with this nonsense, as if the wild gods would speak to, to him. Juniper looked like she wanted to charge the old satire and beat him up, but Annabeth and Clarice held her back. Wrong fight, girly, Clarice muttered. Wait. I don't know what happened, what surprised me more. Clarice holding someone back from a fight or the fact that she and Annabeth, who despised each other, almost seemed like they were working together. For six months, Selenus continued, we have indulged you, Master Underwood. We let you travel. We allowed you to keep your searcher's license. We waited for you to bring proof of your preposterous claim. And what have you found in six months of travel? I, I just need more time, Grover pleaded. Nothing. The elder in the middle chimed in. You have found nothing. But Lenius... Selenus raised his hand. Sharon leaned in and said something to the satires. The satires didn't look happy. They muttered and argued among themselves. But Sharon said something else, and Selenus sighed. He nodded reluctantly. Master Underwood, Selenus announced. We will give you one more chance. Grover brightened. Thank you. One more week. What... But sir, that's impossible. One more week, Master Underwood. And then if you cannot prove your claims, it will be time for you to pursue another career. Something to suit your dramatic talents. Puppet theater, perhaps, or tap dancing. But sir, I... I can't lose my searcher's license my whole life. This meeting of the council is adjourned, Selenus said. Now let us enjoy our noonday meal. 
The old satyr clapped his hands, and a bunch of nymphs melted out of the trees with platters of vegetables, fruits, tin cans, and other gold, goat delicacies. The circle of satyrs broke and charged the food. Grover watched, walked dejectedly toward us. His faded blue t-shirt had a picture of a satyr on it. It read, Got hooves? Hi, Percy, she, he said, so depressed that he didn't even offer to shake my hand. That went well, huh? Those old goats, Juniper said. Oh, Grover, they don't know how hard you've tried. There is another option, Clarice said darkly. No, no, Juniper shook her head. Grover, I won't let you. His face was ashen. I, I'll have to think about it, but we don't even know where to look. What are you talking about? I asked. In the distance, a conch horn sounded. Abbott pursed her lips. I'll fill you in later, Percy. We better get back to our cabins. Inspection is starting. It didn't seem fair that I'd have to go do camp cabin inspection when I just got to camp, but that's the way it worked. Every afternoon, one of the senior counselors came around with a papyrus scroll, ch scroll checklist. Best cabin got first shower hour, which meant hot water guaranteed. Worst cabin got kitchen patrol after dinner. The problem for me, I was usually the only one in the Poseidon cabin, and I'm not exactly what you would call neat. The cleaning harpies only came through on the last day of summer, so my cabin was probably just the way I'd left it on winter break. My candy wrappers and chips bags still on my bunk, my armor for capture the flag lying in pieces all around the cabin. I raced toward the commons area, where the twelve cabins, one for each Olympian god, made a U around the essential green. The Demeter kids were sweeping out theirs and making fresh flowers grow in their window boxes. Just by snapping their fingers, they could make honeysuckle vines bloom over their doorway and daisies co cover their roof, which is totally unfair. I don't think they ever got last place in inspection. The guys in the Hermes cabin were scrambling around in a panic, stashing dirty laundry under their beds and accusing each other of taking stuff. They were slobbed, but they still had a head start on me. Over at the Aphrodite cabin, Selena Beauregard was just coming out, checking items off the inspection scroll. I cursed under my breath. Selena was nice, but she was an absolute neat freak. The worst inspector. She liked things to be pretty. I didn't do pretty. I could almost feel my arms getting heavy from all the dishes I would have to scrub tonight. The Poseidon cabin was at the end of the, ro of the row of male god cabins on the right side of the green. It was made of gray shell and crusted sea rock, long and low like a bunker, but it had windows that faced the sea and it always had a good breeze blowing through it. I dashed inside, wondering if maybe I could do a quick under-the-bed cleaning job like the Hermes guys, and I found my half-brother Tyson sweeping the floor. Percy! he bellowed. He dropped his broom and ran at me. If you've never been charged by an enthusiastic cyclops wearing a flowered apron and rubber cleaning gloves, I'm telling you, it'll wake you up quick. Hey, big guy, I said. Ow, watch the ribs, the ribs! I managed to survive his bear hug. He put me down, grinning like crazy, his single calf brown eye full of excitement. His teeth were as yellow and crooked as ever, and his hair was a rat's nest. He wore ragged triple uh, XL jeans and a tattered flannel shirt under his flowered apron. But he was still a sight for sore eyes. I hadn't seen him in almost a year since he'd gone under the sea to work at the Cyclops Forges. You're okay? He asked. Not eaten by monsters? Not even a little bit. I showed him that I still had both arms and both legs, and Tyson clapped happily. Yay! He said. Now we can eat peanut butter sandwiches and ride fish ponies. 
We can fight monsters and see Annabeth and make things go boom. I hope he didn't mean all of that all uh, at all at the same time. But I told him absolutely. We'd have a lot of fun this summer. I couldn't help smiling. He was so enthusiastic about everything. But first, I said, we've got to worry about inspection. We should... Then I looked around and realized Tyson had been busy. The floor was swept. The bunk beds were made. The saltwater fountain in the corner had been freshly scrubbed so the coral gleamed. On the windowsills, Tyson had set out water-filled vases with sea anemones. Anemones and strange glowing plants from the bottom of the sea more beautiful than any flower bouquet of the demeter kids could whip up tyson the cabin looks amazing he beamed see the fish ponies i put them on the ceiling i heard of miniature bronze hippocampi hung on wires from the ceiling so it looked like they were swimming through the air i couldn't believe tyson with his huge hands could make things so delicate then i looked over at my bunk and I saw my old shield hanging on the wall. You fixed it! The shield had been badly damaged in a manticore attack last winter. But now it was perfect again. Not a scratch. All the bronze pictures of my adventures with Tyson and Annabeth in the Sea of Monsters were polished and gleaming. I looked at Tyson. I didn't know how to thank him. Then somebody behind me said, Oh my! Selena Beauregard was standing in the doorway with her inspection scroll. She stepped into the cabin, did a quick twirl, then raised her eyebrows at me. Well, I had my doubts, but you clean up nicely, Percy. I'll remember that. She winked at me and left the room. Tyson and I spent the afternoon catching up and just hanging out, which was nice after a morning of getting attacked by demon cheerleaders. We went down to the forge and helped Beckendorf from the Hephaestus cabin with his metalworking. Tyson showed us how he'd learned to craft magic weapons. He fashioned a flaming double-bladed war axe so fast even Beckendorf was impressed. While he worked, Tyson told us about his year under the sea. His eye lit up when he described the Cyclops forges in the Palace of Poseidon. But he also told us how tense things were. The old gods of the sea who ruled during Titan times were starting to make war on on her father. When Tyson had left, battles had been raging all over at the Atlantic. Hearing that made me feel anxious, like I should be helping out, but Tyson assured me that Dad wanted us both at camp. Lots of bad people above the sea too, Tyson said. We can make them go boom. After the forges, we'd spend some time at the canoe lake with Annabeth. She was really glad to see Tyson, but I could tell she was distracted. She kept looking over at the forest like she was thinking about Grover's problem with the council. I couldn't blame her. Grover was nowhere to be seen, and I felt really bad for him. Finding the lost god Pan had been his lifelong goal. His father and his uncle had both disappeared following the same dream. Last winter, Grover had heard a voice in his head. I await you. A voice he was sure belonged to Pan, but apparently his search had led nowhere. If the council took away his searcher's license now, it would crush him. What's this other way? I asked Annabeth. The thing Clarice mentioned? She picked up a stone and skipped it across the lake. Something Clarice scouted out. I helped her a little this spring. But it would be dangerous, especially for Grover. Goat boy scares me, Tyson murmured. I stared at him. Tyson had faced down fire-breathing bulls and sea monsters and cannibal giants. Why would you be scared of Grover? Hooves and horns? 
Tyson muttered nervously. And gold fur makes my nose itchy. And that pretty much ended our Grover conversation. Before dinner, Tyson and I went down to the sword arena. Quintus was glad to have company. He still wouldn't tell me what was in this wooden crates, but he did teach me a few sword moves. The guy was good. He fought the way some people play chess. Like he was putting all the moves together. And you couldn't see the pattern until he made the last stroke and won with the sword at your throat. Good try, he told me. But your guard is too low. He lunged and I blocked. Have you always been a swordsman? I asked. He parried my overhead cut. I've been many things. He jabbed and I sidestepped. His shoulder strap slipped down and I saw that mark on his neck. The purple blotch. But it wasn't a random mark. It had a definite shape. A bird with folded wings like a quail or something. What's that on your neck? I asked, which was probably a rude question, but you can blame my ADHD. I tend to just blurt things out. Quintus lost his rhythm. I hit his sword hilt and knocked the blade out of his hand. He rubbed his fingers, then he shifted his armor to hide the mark. It wasn't a tattoo, I realized. It was an old burn, like he'd been branded. A reminder. He picked up his sword and forced a smile. Now, shall we go again? He pressed me hard, not giving me time for any more questions. While he and I fought, Tyson played with Mrs. O'Leary, who he called the little doggy. They had a great time wrestling for the bronze shield and playing Get the Greek. By sunset, Quintus hadn't even broken a sweat, which seemed kind of strange. But Tyson and I were hot and sticky, so we hit the showers and got ready for dinner. I was feeling good. It was almost like a normal day at camp. Then dinner came and all the campers lined up by cabin and marched into the dining pavilion. Most of them ignored the seal fissure in the marching marble floor at the entrance. A ten-foot-long, jagged scar that hadn't been there last summer, but I was careful to step over it. Big crack! Tyson said when we were at the at our table. Earthquake, maybe? No, I said, not an earthquake. I wasn't sure if I should tell him. It was secret. It was secret only Annabeth and Grover and I only knew. But looking in Tyson's big eye, I knew I couldn't hide anything from him. Nico D'Angelo, I said, lowering my voice. He's this half-blood kid we brought to camp last summer. He, uh, he asked me to guard his sister on a quest, and I failed. She died. Now he blames me. Tyson frowned. So he put a crack in the floor? These skeletons attacked us, I said. Nico told them to go away, and the ground just opened up and swallowed them. Nico, I looked around to make sure no one was listening. Nico is a son of Hades. Tyson nodded thoughtfully. The god of dead people. Yeah. So the Nico boy is gone now? I... I guess. I tried to search for him this spring, so did Annabeth, but we didn't have any luck. This is secret, Tyson, okay? If anybody found anyone found out he was a son of Hades, he would be in danger. You can't even tell Sharon. The bad prophecy, Tyson said. Titans might use him if they knew. I stared at him. Sometimes it was so easy to forget that as big and childlike as he was, Tyson was pretty smart. He knew that this next child of the big three gods... Zeus, Poseidon, or Hades, who turned 16, was prophesied to either save or destroy Mount Olympus. Most people assumed that meant me, but if I died before I turned 16, the prophecy could just as easily apply to Nico. Exactly, I said. So? Mouth sealed, Tyson promised, like the crack in the ground. I had trouble falling asleep that night. I lay in bed listening to the waves on the beach and the owls and monsters in the woods. I was afraid once I drifted off I had nightmares. 
See, for half-bloods, dreams are hardly ever just dreams. We get messages. We get we glimpse things that are happening to our friends or enemies. Sometimes we even get we even and at camp, my dreams are always more frequent and vivid. So I was still awake around midnight, staring at the bunk bed mattress above me, when I realized there was a strange light in the room. The salt water fountain was glowing. I threw off the covers and walked cautiously toward it. Steam rose from the hot from the hot salt water. Rainbow colors shimmered through it, though there was no light in the room except for the moon outside. Then a pleasant female voice spoke from the street steam. Please deposit one drachma. I looked over at Tyson, but he was still snoring. He sleeps about as heavily as a tranquilized elephant. I don't know what to think. I never gotten a collect. Um, I never gotten a collect iris message before. One golden drachma gleamed at the bottom of the fountain. I scooped it up and tossed it through the mist. The coin vanished. Oh, Iris, goddess of the rainbow, I whispered. Show me uh, whatever you needed to show me. The mist shimmered. I saw the dark shore of a river. Wisps of fog drifted across black water. The beach was strewn with jagged volcanic rock. A young boy squatted at the riverbank, tending a campfire. The flames burned an unnatural blue color. Then I saw the boy's, fo- boy's face. It was Nico D'Angelo. He was throwing pieces of paper into the fire. Mytho magic trading cards, part of the game he'd been obsessed with last, last winter. Nico was only 10 or maybe 11 by now, but he looked older. His hair had grown longer. It was shaggy and almost touched his shoulders. His eyes were dark and... His olive skin had turned paler. He wore ripped black jeans and a battered aviator's jacket that was several sizes too big, unzipped over a black shirt. His face was grimy, his eyes a little wild. He looked like a kid who'd been living on the streets. I waited for him to look at me. No doubt he'd get crazy angry, start accusing me of letting his sister die, but he didn't seem to notice me. I stayed quiet, not daring to move. If he hadn't sent this iris message, who had? Nico tossed another trading card into the blue flames. Useless, he muttered. I can't even I can't believe I ever liked this stuff. A child is game master, another voice agreed. It seemed to come from near the fire. But I couldn't see who was talking. Nico stared across the river. On the far shore was Black Beach, shrouded in haze. I recognized it, the underworld. Nico was camping at the edge of the river Styx. I failed, he muttered. There's no way to get her back. The other voice kept silent. Nico turned toward it doubtfully. Is there? Speak. Something is shimmered. I thought it was just firelight. Then I realized it was the form of a man. A wisp of blue smoke, a shadow. If you looked at him head on, he wasn't there. But if you looked out of the corner of your eye, you can make out his shape. A ghost. It has never been done, the ghost said, but there may be a way. Tell me, Nico commanded. His eyes shined with a fierce light. An exchange, the ghost said. A soul for a soul. I have offered. Not yours, the ghost said. You cannot offer your father a soul he will eventually collect anyway. Nor will he be anxious for the death of his son. I mean, a soul that should have died already. Someone who has cheated death. Nico's face darkened. Not that again. You're talking about murder. I'm talking about justice. 
the ghost did. Vengeance. Those are not the same thing. The ghost laughed dryly. You will learn differently as you get older. Nico stared at the flames. Why can't I at least summon her? I want to talk to her. She would... She would help me. I will help you, the ghost promised. Have I not saved you many times? Did I not lead you through the maze and teach you to use your powers? Do you want revenge for your sister or not? I didn't like the ghost tone tone of voice. He reminded me of a kid of my old school. A bully who used to convince other kids to do stupid things like steal lab equipment and vandalize the teacher's cars. The bully never got in trouble himself, but he got tons of other kids suspended. Nico turned from the fire so the ghost couldn't see him. But I could. A tear traced its way down his face. Very well, you have a plan? Oh yes, the ghost said, sounding quite pleased. We have many dark roads to travel. We must start. The image shimmered. Nico vanished. The woman's voice from the mist said, Please deposit one drachma for another five minutes. There were no other coins in the fountain. I grabbed from my pockets, but I was wearing pajamas. I lunged from the nightstand to check for spare change. But the iris message had already blinked out, and the room went dark again. The connection was broken. I stood in the middle of the cabin, listening to the gurgle of the saltwater fountain and the ocean waves outside. Nico was alive. He was trying to bring his sister back from the dead, and I had a feeling I knew what soul he wanted to exchange. Someone who had cheated death. Vengeance. Nico D'Angelo would come looking for me. And that is the end of chapter two. Whoa, that was a chapter. I can't believe that Nico... I mean, it makes sense that Nico wants to, you know, get rid of Percy. But he also has to understand that, you know, Percy tried to save Bianca. Like, he said, you can't go, but Bianca didn't listen. So you should think about it from, I guess, Percy's side as well. Because it's not really his fault. Like, Percy didn't really push Bianca into, like, killing herself, right? So I feel that I can understand Nico's anger in some way. But I do feel that he should have understood why Percy did what he did. He still tried to save Bianca. But I guess it just didn't work out in the end. And now Nico is going to come looking for Percy. But I guess we're going to have to wait until next week to see what happens to Percy. Thank you to Leo for sending me a voice message. I will definitely read the Heroes of Olympus after the this series. So until then, stay safe and stay out of boredom.